0: Hello and welcome to the EMVR 203 Knowledge, Ethics and Environment podcast. Uh, This is the episode for week three and we are considering the question, how do we approach animal suffering? Uh, It's a heavy question, it's it's a toughie, I'm not going to lie, we have some uh, work ahead of us this week, there's no doubt about it. Before I get to that, I would like to go through a couple of housekeeping points. The first is a reminder that your first weekly reading question is due Monday, uh, this Monday, September 21st. So you can check out the syllabus for details about how to submit the assignment, and there's also an assignment resource that's posted in my courses um, in the same folder with the syllabus that should give you some good advice about how to do that. Um, So if you haven't done it yet, now's your chance. I'd also like to remind you that we'll be talking about the film Green uh, in our Wednesday class, so you can check that out. It's also in the week three content folder. You can watch that in advance. And finally, uh, just a heads up, you might wanna start thinking about the first paper soon. We're gonna be sharing feedback on drafts in our Wednesday, October 7th class. So the more you have done, the more you will benefit from the feedback of your peers. So mark your calendars and start planting those seeds about which papers you might like to compare and uh, you get started on those papers uh, sooner rather than later, if you'd like to benefit from, uh, some peer feedback. Okay. So that's it for housekeeping. Let's get to the question of how do we approach animal suffering? All right. So the first article that we're going to be looking at this week is Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. This is an oldie. It was written in 1973. It's actually an article that um, works as a review for a book. So this is why it was published in the New York Review of Books. Uh, he was using his review of animals, men, and morals um, as an opportunity for him to put forward his new perspective in thinking about animal rights. Uh, And his book would soon follow, um, his book Animal Liberation was published shortly after. So in this chapter, this article rather, he draws from the work of the English philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, uh, who lived in the sort of the, the second half of the 1700s and the early 1800s. And Bentham's question was that of thinking about how, When we're thinking about how to relate to animals, the question we should be using to sort of organize that is, is can they in fact suffer? And so Singer borrows that question from Bentham, you know, can they suffer? And if so, that should be guiding our relationships to animals. And in the article, Singer describes many speciesist practices that result from neglecting the question entirely, so we don't think about whether they can suffer. And certainly we ignore the suffering of of other animals um, as a result of neglecting the question. So what's interesting to me is that in the article, Singer talks quite a lot about how the suffering of animals is wrong because they are sentient creatures, but he doesn't really unpack what sentience means. We've talked about it before in uh, the class, but I think that uh, we'll continue to revisit that idea with more depth over the course of the podcast today too, because it's a really pertinent um, issue. Now, if animal liberation focuses on um, the the question of sentience, the question of suffering, and all of the kind of horrendous examples that he provides um, of how animals are treated in the 1970s, I mean, I'll be the first to admit it's dated in many ways. Um, you know, the opening phrase we're familiar with, black liberation, uh, and a variety of other movements, etc. It feels a little out of touch in a black lives matter context to to be gesturing in the way that he does as if these issues, these social issues are already resolved. Nevertheless, it was the product of its time and I think we, we have to understand it and read it in that context. We are welcome to hold that critique even while we engage with his ideas. Now, when we look to Boyd, uh, this week we're reading chapter two and three And in chapter two, what we see is uh, a focus on the evolution of animal welfare and Boyd actually makes an early distinction between animal welfare and animal rights. And animal welfare, he describes as being uh, a bit incremental, uh, inclined to doing what it can in a practical way to improve the living conditions for animals. Uh, in in various contexts, often regarding factory farming, for example. And again, we we have some pretty uh, gruesome examples of why that work is so essential provided in the chapter. But again, Boyd does uh, a similar thing as Singer here. He suggests that the key to animal welfare activism is recognition that animals are not things, but they're in fact sentient beings. Now, Boyd, Unlike Singer, goes on to define sentience, and he says it's more than just a capacity to respond to stimuli. Quote, it means animals have emotions and can experience both physical and psychological pleasure and pain, end quote. So I think, you know, as we build through these readings, we're getting a little closer to understanding sentience and why it connects to suffering and and how that informs how we should be treating other animals. Now, if we look to chapter three, uh, this chapter is titled, Can Chimpanzee Be a Legal Person? And here we have another interesting discussion because we're moving from questions of you know can we improve the battery cage sizes or uh the crates in which um veal you know calves are raised in these kind of um these kind of incremental can we make the basic conditions a little bit more um Humane, which is really the project of animal welfare activists. And don't get me wrong, that's it's really important work, but animal rights is doing something different. Um, and interestingly, it often, rather than focusing on chickens or cattle, it tends to focus on individual animals. And we, we get a sense of where that uh, strategy may be rooted, will we learn about the history of Stephen Wise as a lawyer who wants to speak for the voiceless um, and how he dedicates his career to representing the interests of animals as innocent creatures. Um, And part of the strategy for focusing on the rights of individual animals is about how the legal system actually works. Uh, we're focusing on the US in this case, but it, it works in similar ways elsewhere. The thing about things is that they are invisible to judges. Legal things are invisible to judges. Um, they What matters then are the legitimacy of the claims of the owners, never the things themselves but legal persons count in the law. Legal persons have rights, they have protections, they have privileges, responsibilities, and even legal liability. So I wanna be really, really clear here. Being a human and being a legal person is not the same thing. And in fact, that is all too clear when we recall that slaves and women And children have all historically been considered legal things rather than legal persons. And so, prior to their recognition and protection as legal persons, they were in fact um, legally treatable as objects to be exchanged um, legal things without much protection or privilege. So, Stephen Wise decides he wants to help uh, a group of chimpanzees kind of break the ground here, the legal ground, in order to become legal persons and to open up this question more broadly of animal rights as persons. He wants this because he's convinced that with legal personhood uh, comes the recognition of autonomy and of self-determination, and a whole host of new behaviors would be uh, expected as a result. Now, what's interesting is that you don't actually have to be a living being even to be a legal person. So I've already mentioned um, women, for example, were not considered legal persons. Uh, and but that's, you know, that's that's an example of, you know, a human being who ob- obtained, human beings who obtained legal personhood through uh, political activism. But we have, um, you know, things that don't enjoy sentience, for example, uh, like corporations and sovereign states that also are recognized actually as legal persons currently. So a corporation enjoys more rights and protections and privileges than the chimpanzees that Stephen Wise is defending do because they are not recognized as persons while corporations are, in fact. So, you know, one of the things that I think is striking about the chapter. Is that the decisions that the judges made when they shied away from the question of whether chimpanzees deserve to be treated as someones rather than some things? Is, is really at the heart of this question. You know, are they property or do they have autonomy that is violated by our current legal and economic systems and by anthropocentric thinking for that matter? And so, you know, I want us to to imagine what becomes possible if we try to listen to the chimpanzees about their experiences, by which I mean, you know, can we attend to the reality of chimp experience here? Can we observe their preferences? Can, can we pay attention? And of course, the readings from last week and, and this week too should suggest to you that, that science and philosophy and social science can actually all be quite helpful for this kind of work. But before we get into it, I'd actually like to invite you to pause for a minute and just see if you can think of an example in your own life where you've seen an animal either being treated as a thing or as property, and then see if you can find another example where the animal's agency or sentience were actually being recognized. So. It's okay if you can't think of an example for each, but just give it a shot. You can pause the podcast here, take some time to consider what comes to mind, what characterizes these examples for you, and does the suffering or the pleasure of these animals come into, the play, come into play at all in these, these examples that you bring to mind? So, you can pause the podcast and come back when you're ready. Okay, so welcome back. Uh, Now we're ready to get into our final reading uh, for the week, Consider the Lobster by David Foster Wallace. This article was published in August 2004 in Gourmet Magazine, uh, which I know is an unusual kind of source for uh, a university class, but um, while it's supposed to be a review of the 2003 Maine Lobster Festival, this piece of writing is deeply concerned with ethics and, uh, and the question of boiling a creature alive. So this is what Wallace is asking us uh, when he, he's asking us to consider the lobster. It's an unusual request for sure, but he wants to know, is this creature worthy of moral consideration and if so why and if not why not he describes them as basically sea insects uh invertebrates in other words and then he asks us is it all right to boil a sentient creature alive just for our gustatory pleasure so in other words just for the the sensory experience the 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 deliciousness um, of, of this meat. So part of the way that he wants to answer the question of all rightness, like is it all right or not, is by trying to appreciate what being boiled alive actually means to the lobster. I mean, even if we can't really relate to the creature, which, you know, it's, it's a pretty big, Jump. So in order to bridge that gap, he's gonna use a tremendous amount of research and creative thought too, frankly, to help us push the limits of our own understanding in order to better imagine this other creature's experience. So in a sense, this is an act of listening, of deep speculation into the unknown, of, of attending to lobster reality. Lobsters are hard to anthropomorphize, though, but he still asks us, is it all right to boil a sentient creature alive just for our gustatory pleasure? Now, one of the things that makes this such a challenging piece of writing and of thought is this question of whether or not lobsters feel pain. This issue is of central importance because the idea that they don't feel pain is often used not just to kill them, but to justify. The particularly brutal way that they're killed. So, Wallace invites us to consider the difference between pain and suffering as part of the exploration of that question. And he argues that pain and suffering can be considered distinct since they're actually processed in different parts of the brain. So, just as a quick summary here, we can think of pain as the response to a painful stimuli. So, maybe I brush my hand against a hot element on the stove, and I pull my hand back quickly before I even realize that I've been burned. But we can think of the suffering as the next step, that is the emotional response, the experiencing of that pain as unpleasant or unbearable. So once I realize I've been burned, I can feel that in my nerves, and I'm hurting, that's that's where suffering kicks in. So. Wallace is the first to point out that comparative neuroanatomy has its challenges. And the question of whether or not other creatures experience pain is actually quite a complex question. And I mean, even between humans, pain is a totally subjective mental experience. We do not have direct access to anyone or anything else's pain but our own. So it really comes down to. trying to find another way to think this through looking for a shared set of moral principles or or an ethics in order to uh, make a decision here and wallace suggests that ethicists can do two things the first is to look at neurological hardware uh, in terms of what's required to experience pain what does the animal have this kind of equipment nociceptors neuronal opioid receptors this sort of stuff so that's the first part does does the creature have the the physiological capacity to experience pain but the other criterion is whether the animal demonstrates the behavior associated with pain does it show a preference for not enduring a painful experience and wallace suggests that when it comes to lobsters It is possible that they're experiencing pain, but not necessarily feeling anything about it, so they're not particularly distressed or not enjoying it either, just experiencing it. But, you know, then he remembers and reminds us this kind of uh, observed behavior of the clambering out of a pot, of boiling water or hanging onto the edge, any of these things, um, if that counts for anything, then we might want to infer that lobsters on some level prefer not to be boiled alive. And so this is why he gets to the place that rather than settling the pain versus suffering question, what is clear is that the lobster has preferences and that these preferences include not being boiled. So to Wallace's mind, this is where we might be concerned with their interests and we might afford lobsters some kind of moral consideration. The thing is that the extension of moral consideration is not at all obvious. Many value theories would not necessarily do so And value theories in general help us figure out what is a good state of the world. So, what does it even mean for one state of affairs to be better than another? And even those that would, uh, you know, consider the lobster might do so in different ways or for different reasons. Um, There's a, like I say, there's a range of different value theories. So, I'm just going to take a moment now. To tell you a little bit about some of these different theories okay so the first of the individualistic value theories in terms of the narrowest sphere of moral consideration is nihilism and basically nihilism says nothing has any intrinsic value that's it um, we're not going to spend a lot of time there but if we want to begin with a uh, something to value, we have egoism. And in that value theory, the idea is that I have intrinsic value, the individual, uh, the self in particular, but no one else does, no humans, no other creatures, um, except for maybe the ways in which you might be useful to me, which would be a kind of instrumental value. It's quite a narrow circle of consideration or sphere of of moral consideration uh so next up the one we're probably most familiar with anthropocentrism so as we've been talking about this is the idea that all humans have an intrinsic value uh that they're valuable uh in and of their own right they're they're not a means to someone else's end um but no other animals would have this value, except that kind of instrumental value for promoting humans' good. Maybe as food, maybe as clothing, uh, as um, you know, uh, allowing us to to test medicines or cosmetics, etc. Those kinds of things. So that's anthropocentrism. We should be pretty familiar with it by now other individualistic value theories uh, that we are working towards now uh, the next might be sentientism so in this framework all animals that are able to experience pleasure or happiness or satisfaction all of those animals have intrinsic value so other organisms that aren't capable of that or to follow Singer are not capable of of being aware of their suffering um, wouldn't really be considered as having value. Um, So again, Peter Singer is a sentientist philosopher uh, and he's looking to that kind of awareness as the basis of extending moral consideration. Then we have biocentrism in which all living organisms uh, would have intrinsic values. you wouldn't have to necessarily be self-conscious or or enjoy uh, you know experience pleasure or experience suffering in order to have value simply by virtue of being alive. That's enough. But lifeless matter, energy, those kinds of things wouldn't. Um, and it's kind of the the individual creature that is afforded moral consideration. But there are two more uh, value theories that, and they're a little bit different. They're, we could call them holistic value theories. The first might be ecocentrism. So we're thinking about organisms, species, but actually even ecosystems themselves are all considered to have irreducible intrinsic value within this framework. So lifeless matter, say stones or energy, those kinds of things wouldn't be considered as having value, um, except maybe instrumental value to, uh, to species or uh, to ecosystems. But what's interesting about the ecocentric approach is that it values the existence of systems themselves, that they too have a right to exist as systems with integrity. So you might be familiar with the uh, the writer and, e- and environmental thinker, Aldo Leopold. He can be considered an ecocentrist. And Val Plumwood, who we read last week and who we'll read again at the end of the term, is also a well-known ecocentric thinker. And the last of these holistic value theories uh, we might call cosmic universalism, which is basically the idea that that everything that exists organisms species ecosystems and, uh, ecosystems rather and even lifeless matter and energy they all have intrinsic value the idea here being that a universe that has even a single stone is better than a universe that doesn't have anything at all so as the term continues we'll keep thinking about these value theories and what they mean uh, in terms of how we're able to extend our sphere of moral consideration. For now, I think it's enough to recognize that there are many possible theories to draw from, uh, different traditions and thinkers. And while anthropocentrism is the, the dominant view, there are many other ways of regarding life beyond the human. So at this point, you know, let's move towards our conclusion. Let's return to the organizing question of the week. How do we approach animal suffering? And the truth is I think that the three readings that we read this week tell us that we we actually don't often think all that much about it. Um, some people do, some people ask the questions, extend the sphere of moral consideration beyond themselves, beyond humanity, uh, to, to consider the experiences of other living things. Many of us are not yet willing or capable or uh, interested in going there. So to wrap up today, um, I want to close with another example of how we might consider the lobster something a little bit different than what Wallace proposed. And this is a story about how in 2016, Buddhist monks on Prince Edward Island bought 600 pounds of lobster and they took these lobsters and they released them back into the ocean. And they did this in order to protect the lives of the lobsters, but they did it also to help the rest of us think about how to cultivate compassion toward other animals. So the the Buddhist practices is one where, where compassion can be described as both the desire to relieve suffering and to give joy and these monks are extending the boundary of who is legitimately entitled to respect who's entitled to compassion and as we've seen you know it's a boundary that many of us don't like to look at very closely even though we may work to maintain it in in many ways um but that's also a boundary that's increasingly being challenged and destabilized and contested and expanded. And we're seeing more and more examples of how, how people are pushing their, their moral consideration uh, into these new domains and, and considering other creatures uh, and even ecosystems themselves. And in fact, just as a closing thought, the Buddhists were able to actually enlist local fishermen to help them find a better place to put those lobsters so they wouldn't be recaptured so easily. So there you go. We can surprise ourselves. On that note, I think I'd like to say thanks very much for listening. Uh, I look forward to seeing some of you in class uh, this week. And take good care. Bye now.
1: I'd ask my friends to come and see An octopus's garden with me. I'd like to be under the sea, in an octopus's garden, in the shade. We would be warm below the storm, in our little hideaway beneath the waves. Resting our head on the seabed In an octopus's garden near a cave We would sing and dance around Because we know we can't be found I'd like to be under the sea In an octopus's garden in the shade and an octopus is gone with you